The following sermon was delivered in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Well, good morning. Thank you so much. Um, as uh, my wife told me earlier, like this is... Um, just one of the friendliest churches that we've uh, we visited, and um, and I I affirm that I am in that. Um, we've been thank you so much for the warm welcome that you've uh, that we've been embraced with uh, this morning, and um, it's just a, it's a pleasure to it's also um, kind of uh, nerve wracking to be preaching in front of my professor, you know, like what is he gonna what is he gonna think? What's he gonna say afterwards? All of the critiques and so forth. But um, it's um, you know that that nervousness is um, dispelled when it's not me preaching or my my ideology, my thoughts, but from God's word. And so uh, let, let me go ahead and just open in prayer before I preach God's word. Father, we come to you right now. In awe of you, in awe of what you have done for each and every individual, each and every one of us in here that have been saved by grace through faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, this this room should be empty right now. Nobody here deserves to be praising and worshiping you. But because you have captivated us and renewed us, caused us to be born again by your Spirit, Lord, we are here singing praises to you. And Father, I ask right now that you would empower the preaching of your word, that you would guard my lips from preaching or speaking any untruth, Lord. I pray that your spirit would attend to the ministry of your word, and that you would not only empower the preaching of your word, but that you would empower the hearing of your word, Lord. God, may may your people be impacted through the preaching of your word. May we not just grow more in our knowledge of the Bible, but may our lives reflect lives that have been changed and transformed by your word. God, we need you. We pray that you would give us grace, that you would give us mercy, and that Christ would be exalted this morning through the manifold blessings that you are about to give us from your blessed word. Father, I, I'm a beggar, and I have no power to change any hearts in here. And so, God, I, I thrust myself upon your mercy, asking, Father, that you would do the work that only you can do, and that no mere man can do, which is to change hearts. Father, may Christ be exalted. I pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Today, this uh, this morning, we're going to be um, going through the book of Isaiah, and um, this has become one of my favorite books in the Bible as I've gone through this book. Uh, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, and if you have your Bibles, you can read along with me, and if you don't, just listen to the reading of God's Word. So beginning in verse 1. It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, 
Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of those two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. May the Lord bless the preaching and the reading of his word. So, Patrick Smith is a commercial airline pilot who flies Boeing 757s and 767s. Smith says that the number one thing that gets passengers anxious or fearful is turbulence. I would definitely give a hearty amen to that. I don't know about you guys, but if I'm or when I'm flying 30,000 feet in the air and that large piece of metal machinery begins to shake like crazy... If I haven't been praying that week, I guarantee you in that instant, I become a prayer warrior. Lord, you are the sovereign God over everything, including the winds that are shaking this plane right now. So please, Lord, please control it. You know, um, however, as, as frightful as the experience of a shaking plane may be, Smith argues from the perspective of, of a pilot now that turbulence really isn't that big of a deal. This is what he says. For all intents and purposes, a plane cannot be flipped upside down, thrown into a tailspin, or otherwise flung from the sky by even the mightiest gust of, or air pocket. Conditions might be annoying or un, and uncomfortable, but the plane is not going to crash. Turbulence is an aggravating nuisance for everybody, including the crew. But it's also, for lack of a better term, normal. From a pilot's perspective, it is ordinarily seen as a convenience issue, not a safety issue. When a flight changes altitude in search of smoother conditions, this is, by and large, in the interest of comfort. The pilots aren't worried about the wings falling off. They're trying to keep their customers relaxed and everybody's coffee where it belongs. In the worst of it, you probably imagine the pilots in a sweaty lather, the captain barking orders, hands tight on the wheel as the ship lists from one side to another. Nothing could be further from the truth. Smith concludes saying that while the passengers worry about the turbulence, the pilots are having a casual conversation about their morning juice. You know, what, what, what's interesting about this uh, statement by this pilot is that it's a perfect illustration of how Christians respond to the trials of life. 
when, when we get jolted or shaken by the turbulences of life's trials, we begin to panic. We begin to get fearful and worried. And at the, at the root of our fear, worry, panic is a spirit of unbelief. And that, that unbelief comes from walking by sight and not by faith. We have, a, we have an unrealistic view of life and reality. We only see what's in front of us rather than trusting in God's sure foundation coming from his word. We begin to panic because we zero in our focus on the trial right in front of us. Our lives begin to fall apart in the midst of trials because in the heat of the moment, our lives are governed by fear and not by faith. The main point that God wants you to learn and live by from this passage is to stand firm in the faith, which is why the title of this morning's message is How Firm a Foundation, one of my favorite hymns. But how do Christians, how do you and I build a firm foundation of faith? Well, this sermon is going to answer that for us. And I've got three points for us this morning. The first one, uh, stop focusing on your problems, verses 1 and 2. The second point, stop focusing on saving yourself, verses, verse 3. And point number three, start focusing on God's word, verses 4 through 9. I told my friend Jason, Jason Jarvis, many of you know him here, I said, he asked me, what are you preaching on this morning? Um, Isaiah chapter 7, 1 through uh, 9, and he said, what, what's your outline? I said, it's, it's pretty basic, you know, it's, not, it's nothing fancy, and, and he said, you know, basic is good, as long as it's clear, so that people can understand and actually walk away understanding God's word, and I've never been too good at being um, uh, creative and coming up with... Um, points in, in a message. But um, it's, I, I hope that, as even though it's so basic, I, I do hope and pray that you walk away remembering these things. It's so much easier for us to, to, um, to, to learn God's truth than actually live it, live it out. And so as, I want to make it as basic for you as I can so that you can actually walk away and remember this a week from now, a month from now, or even a year from now. And so, beginning with the first point uh, of how to build a firm foundation of faith. The first point, stop focusing on your problems. And there are two reasons from the text as to why being so problem-focused will hinder you from building a firm foundation of faith. That first reason is focusing on your problems generates fear in yourself. The second one, focusing on your problems generates fear in others. The first reason, focusing on your problems generates fear in yourself. Verse 2, it says, Isaiah says, When the house of David was told that Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And when Ahaz got word of this, uh, the, the coalition between Syria and Israel, his heart was terrorized. Now, in order for us to, to, to get the, the, uh, the, to, to get a full impact or to feel the full impact of what's going on in this passage, I think it necessary for me to give you the backstory of what's going on within the historical context of where or when Isaiah is writing. So, this event that Isaiah describes probably took place around 735 BC, three years before Damascus fell under the might of the Assyrians. And during this time, uh, the major superpower of the day was Assyria. 
which is, would be modern-day Syria or Iraq. Um, Assyria was on a military campaign to take control of the neighboring nations in the Mesopotamia. Palestine, which included Israel and Syria, was on, uh, they were on Assyria's chopping block. They were about to get assimilated into their empire. And in an attempt to keep Assyria at bay, Syria attempted to establish a coalition of nations to keep Assyria from attacking. Israel, the ten northern tribes, joined Syria's coalition. Uh, but, however, Judah, on the other hand, refused. And uh, therefore, Syria and Ephraim devised a plan to attack Judah and replace King Ahaz with a puppet king. We're not told the name of this, uh, uh, of, um, of this puppet king, but in verse 6, we're told that this puppet king was the son of Tabeel. And so this is why Ahaz is struck with so much fear. What's going on? He's, he's outnumbered. He's outgunned by a much larger coalition army. Ahaz sees the problem at hand and he recognizes that he's weak and power, powerless. Therefore, his first response is to tremble in fear. Now, I'm pretty sure that no one in this room has a problem the size of Ahaz with armies coming to attack you. However, how many of us here this morning respond to the trials in our lives similarly to Ahaz? This is the case all throughout Scripture. Men begin to develop a spirit of fear as soon as we take our eyes off the Lord and focus on our problems. Whether it's fear of people, uh, just like Abraham when he was going into a foreign land, uh, lying about Sarah not being his wife, or Peter being afraid of what people might think of him because he broke bread with the Gentiles. Our faith wanes when at the first sign of trouble we zero in on our trials. So how about you? How do you respond in life when that time of the month comes to pay bills and your savings account is looking a little slim? You're living from paycheck to paycheck and you're wondering if you're going to have enough to pay the bills. What about when your engine breaks down and you're forced to empty out that savings account? Do you begin to tremble? You, be, you begin to worry at how you're going to make it through. This sense of fear comes upon us thinking that it'll be the end of us. That fear that we experience in these moments are generated because we're so focused on the problem at hand. What do you do when you get that, uh, when you get that, um, the information from the doctor and, say, and says, you've, you've got cancer? Do you begin to fear? you begin to worry? You know, this is, this is this fear, fear mentality. It's, it's, it's what happened to the disciples in Mark 4 when they were out at sea. Do you remember that passage? All they saw were the waves crashing on the ship and therefore they feared death rather than focusing on the Lord of the seas who is right there in the ship with them. Therefore, in, in, in order for us to stand firm or to have a firm foundation of faith, we need to change the direction of our line of sight and stop focusing first and foremost on our problems. What battles are you facing this morning, saints, whatever it is? 
What army-sized trials are you focusing on that has you so worried, so crippled and fearful, anxious, panicking? We begin to generate fear in ourselves when we, metaphorically speaking, take the magnifying glass and point it at our problems, blow them out of proportion. We make our trials bigger than they really are. Maybe your faith is crippled because like Ahaz, you make people or things big and make God look so small. Second, focusing on your problems generates fear in others. Verse 2. It, it tends to, you know, focusing on our fears, it, it tends to have a domino effect. A little leaven can most certainly leaven the whole lump, whether, you know, whether you know it or not. You have... We all have a level of influence upon people's lives. That's why we have terms like killjoy or Debbie Downer, right? Uh, Such people can change the entire mood of a situation just like that. One killing the happy, joyful feeling and the other bringing everyone to a state of sadness or depression. You know, similarly, we can leaven the lump of our relationships with the spirit of fear when we ourselves are continually dominated by fear because we're so problem-focused. Parents, how many of... If you were to ask, all the parents in here, if you were to ask your children to describe your life when you're confronted with trials, would they say that mom and dad are quick to hit their knees and cry out to God? Or would they say that... You know what? Mom and dad talk a big game about faith, but every time there's something that happens, I, they, they're always fearful, always anxious. And is it any wonder when, uh, that, 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 um, uh, why people would make comments like, you're just like your dad or you're just like your mom when they, when they grow up? And, just be, and because you were fearful, your, your, your children develop a spirit of fear themselves. And it says this idea of our fears generating fear in our uh, in others is is clearly seen in uh, the book of Numbers. Do you guys remember in uh, chapter thirteen, I believe, verse twenty eight and twenty nine, right before they enter into the promised land, uh, the they're, they're instructed to to send spies to scope out the land, and the spies come back with the report, and they say that that you know, the the land is lush, right? It, it's it's wonderful. But those people that are in there, they've got fortified cities. They're, 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 we're like grasshoppers to them. See, that, that's, this spirit of uh, the, focusing on our problems not only generates fear in ourselves, but also generates fear in others, which is crippling to building a firm found or a hindrance to building a firm foundation of faith. And so in order for you to build a firm foundation of faith, you need to stop focusing on your problems. The second point, stop focusing on trying to save yourself. Verse 3, it says that, um, actually, uh, ver, uh, verse, um, uh, verse 3, And the Lord said to Ahaz, Go out to meet Ahaz and shear Jashub your son at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Uh, and so that is the next point. In order for you to build a firm foundation, you need to stop focusing on trying to save yourself. I, Isaiah and his son are sent to Ahaz to give him a message from who? From Yahweh. Uh, from the Lord himself. And in verse 3, it says that Ahaz is on the highway to the washer's field. But why is that detail included in this passage? 
Well, why should we care? And what does, what does that detail teach us? Well, Ahaz is taking inventory of his resources. And uh, when Syria and Ephraim arrive, uh, arrives, it, it's most likely that they're going to besiege Ahaz within the walls of Jerusalem. And so the problem that Ahaz will have is water supply. The washer's field, some say, is located outside the walls of Jerusalem, north or south. That, that really doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is that Ahaz is trying to see if whether or not he can stand up to this assault that's coming his way. Ahaz is trying to figure out how he can possibly hold out if the water supply were to be cut off. You know, Ahaz hasn't only made the mistake of focusing on his problems, but he's also focused on himself and how he can save this kingdom. Let me just say that there's absolutely nothing wrong with planning. But the mistake that Ahaz is making is planning without including God in the plan. Nowhere does it say that Ahaz sought the Lord and cried out to him, prayed to him, asked for wisdom. No, he's frantically panicking, trying to see how he can save himself and his kingdom. Like Ahaz, when we focus on saving ourselves, we take the place of Christ to be the Savior of our lives. Rather than thrusting upon our lives upon the grace and mercy of God, we have the tendency to strap on the bootstraps and try to save the day. We, we have this tendency to think that we know better than God. Ahaz is so focused on trying to fix his own problems that he doesn't recognize the hand of God reaching out to him. You know, the fact that Isaiah and his son, Sheer Jashub, are coming to Ahaz is a sign of God trying to extend help, grace, and mercy to this king. Both their names are significant that it points to Yahweh and his salvific nature. Isaiah's name means Yahweh saves, while his son's name means a remnant shall return. God wants Ahaz to know that no matter what happens, even if everything falls apart, Yahweh will save his people and a remnant shall return. And so, how does Ahaz respond? The, the, the lights turn on for him, right? And, and he comes to his senses and he says, Isaiah, my man, I'm so glad to see you. Uh, did, oh yeah, doesn't your name mean Yahweh saves? Why am I all frantic and panicking? Duh. No, quite the opposite. Ahaz has gone all in and there's no going back for him. How many of us, though, are like Ahaz? And when we're in the middle of a trial, we move ahead of God. We do all the planning. We've done all of our calculations. We've got the blueprint drawn up. And we're ready to start solving our problems. And all the while, we haven't even paused to pray to seek the Lord, nor sought Him in His word for His wisdom and guidance. You know, even when God has reached out to us to extend help with his, what we, we continually go headlong into our path of self-destruction. I, 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 I must confess that God has time and time again attempted to reach to me, to reach out to me, and yet several times my pride just gets in the way. Just ask my wife. 
ask her. Actually, don't ask my wife. Uh, I wonder how many times she's thought in her head, I told you so. I told you so. You see, if you, if you want to build a firm foundation of faith, stop focusing on saving, trying to save yourself. As much as we'd like to think that we can save ourselves, we need to come to the grips and embrace the reality that God is our Savior, that God alone can save. You know, sometimes the best thing that we can do is to humble ourselves and confess to God by saying, God, I don't know what to do. I don't have the answers. Therefore, I come to you. Please help. You don't need a long paragraph uh, pharisaical prayer. You, you simply say, God, help me. What did Jesus say in the first of the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Just come to the Lord. Come to the Father, poor and broke, and that's enough. The problem is that we think we're rich, rich in human ingenuity, rich in human wisdom, life experiences that we forget that everything we've been, that everything we have is, has been given to us from God himself. And to our last point of how to build a firm foundation of faith, again, so simple, but how many of us can, can actually live that out. Start focusing on God's word. You might begin to think that just because we've been talking about how being problem-focused and inward-focused generates fear in us and causes our faith to weaken, that what's needed, that, what's the, that the answer to all of these, uh, to, the, to this problem, to, to building a firm foundation is to, to, to muster up as much strength as we can from ourselves. And, and however, that's not the, the answer. We may think that we, we just need to be more courageous. We need to, we, we need to, uh, we need to pump ourselves up. Well, the, the answer to fear, brothers and sisters, isn't stronger faith. As ironic or weird as that may sound, the answer to fear, your fear, is not stronger faith. You see, faith in the Christian life isn't about developing greater faith in your faith. It's not. For example, when, when you all sat down on the chairs that you're sitting on, you, you're, you're, it wasn't your trust in your trust that gave you the wherewithal to sit on those tears that you're sitting on this morning. It was your trust or your belief that those chairs were strong enough to bear your weight. Likewise, brothers and sisters, it's not our faith in our faith that saves us. Faith, this might sound contradictory, and you might think I'm heretical for saying this, but faith doesn't save anybody. Faith doesn't save anybody. It's the object of our faith that saves. And the object of a Christian's faith is in God himself, namely in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, in order for you to build a firm foundation of faith, you need to start focusing on God himself. And, and, and there are two things from our text about God that you need to focus on to help you build a firm foundation of faith. 
The first one, focus on the promises of God. The second, focus on the sovereignty of God. Clearly spelled out for us in this text. The first one, focus on the promises of God. Notice in verse 2 that Isaiah refers to the kingdom of Judah as the house of David. Now, this isn't the usual way that Isaiah describes a southern kingdom. He, he names them, he uses that term in chapter 7, verse 13, and 22, verse 22, but that's, that's, that's about it. But why? But why does he refer to them as the house of David? Well, I believe that he's giving special attention to the house of David because he's drawing special attention back to the Davidic covenant. If, uh, if you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, God made a promise. He made a promise to King David that he would establish his kingdom and his throne forever. Forever. Therefore, if the kingdom of Judah falls, then that promise can't be fulfilled. At the heart of this passage is rooted the promises of God himself. If the Syrian Ephraimite coalition succeeds in destroying Judah, then God fails. Everything that God has ever said will fail. This attack on Judah threatens to undo the very promises of God. And so God knows what's at stake here. He knows that his character is at stake here. And he's not about to sit back and allow these idolatrous nations get in the way of that which he promised, that which he planned. And so the reason why we don't have a firm foundation of faith is because we allow the voice of our trials to drown out the very voice of God and all that he promises, all, of, all that he's promised to us. Do you ever fear that God will fail to meet your very basic needs? Well, what does God's word say about that? In Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 33, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows them, that he knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, our, this is, our fears say something to God. Our fears, our worry, our anxiety speak something to God. They are a, are a, they're a major affront to the God of the universe. You know, because in our fears, we say something that is, that just goes against the very character of who the God of the Bible is. At the heart of your fear and my fear, we're saying that God isn't a man of his word or a God of his word, right? It, it may seem like a minor offense, but your fear is screaming loudly saying that God won't come through and that everything he's ever promised is a lie. You see, it's not, it's, it's no little thing. Our fear, our worry, and our, all of our anxieties when we're confronted with trials in our lives, those things, our response is no small thing. It may seem like it because we think it's just an emotional response, but it is screaming something very loudly to God 
and it's targeting his character. We've got it backwards, brothers and sisters. Rather than allowing our fears to drown out the promises of God, it should be the very promises of God that drowns out our fears. And what? why? The, the reason is because he's trustworthy. It is his character. We, we often think that we need to have all of the answers to all of life's problems. But God isn't concerned with you or me having all of the answers to all of our problems. God's will, God's more concerned, or His will for you is that you recognize your bankruptcy so that He can fill you with the manifold riches of His grace and mercy. Faith looks with hope for tomorrow. Because when it looks back on yesterdays and yesteryears, it sees that God has never failed. We see it, God's, we look at God's track record, looking back at all that he's done, not just for us, but for his people throughout all of, of history. He's never failed. Just ask yourself, when has God ever failed you? The answer is never. He's the God of truth, and he keeps every last one of his promises. He's not like us. He's not like man, that he should lie. He's, we've said vows before for, for those of us that have mar- uh, are married in here, and, and how many, it wasn't uh, the very same night, my wedding day, where uh, vows already were, were broken. But God isn't like us. God isn't like us. God is not just a promise maker. He is a promise keeper. You see, not, not even your sins can undo. If, if you, your trial is with your own sin, the, the, uh, it's, 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 it's one of the, the, the most um, trying things in my life is, is indwelling sin, the sin that remains. Although God has changed each and every one of us that have come to him uh, through Christ asking for the forgiveness of sins, we still battle, we still wrestle with our own sins. And sometimes it can be overwhelming. Sometimes that could be the very trial, the army, army-sized trial that we're facing where we're battling our own sins. But, uh, and, and you may be beating yourself up because you think that you've sinned so bad that God's grace is insufficient to save you or to forgive you. Well, you need to know right now that you can never out-sin God's grace. And that, that, that statement should not give you a license to sin, but should propel you and compel you to love God in obedience. What does God's word say about uh, forgiveness? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in that place right now where you're fearful of God, thinking, uh, thinking of whether or not God will take you back because you've sinned so much or you've sinned again, fix your eyes upon the finished work of Christ and believe that he that began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. That's not, that's not a suggestion. That's a certainty. That's, a, that's, that's an absolute statement. And if you're in that place where you're afraid because you don't know what to do, well, what does James say? If any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given to you. That is not a suggestion. It's a a promise. It's an invitation for you to come to the Lord and ask him for wisdom. It's okay that you don't have all the answers. 
So if you want a firm foundation of faith, then focus on God's promises, brothers and sisters. The true sign of faith and actually be believing God will always express itself in some positive way. Well, one pastor says it this way. This is what true faith is, my friends. Positive certainty expressed in action. Positive certainty expressed in action. You see, when you truly believe with your heart and with your mind that God is a God of his word, then your trials will never have the power to cripple you with fear and anxiety. Because you know the one who is greater than all of your trials. To say that we believe God and yet live in fear and worry is to live as practical atheists. It doesn't, it doesn't fit together. To give a mental assent to faith in God isn't the same thing as having true faith in God. We can know the the solas. We can know the uh, systematic theology. We can know, we can quote, uh, spout verses out of, from our head just, just like that. But to, to be able to do that and actually believe what we're spouting off with our mouth are two different things, brothers and sisters. You want a firm foundation of faith? Start focusing on the promises of God. The second thing about God that we need to focus on to build a firm foundation of faith is to focus on God's sovereignty. Verses 4 through 9, it says this, And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. And let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as a king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. So there are spheres regarding God's sovereignty that we need to focus on from these verses. His sovereignty over the purposes of men and his sovereignty over all of history. The first one, focusing on God's sovereignty over the, the purposes of men. Uh, verses 4 through 7. Regardless of how much noise these two nations are making, God's encouraging Ahaz to be careful, to keep his peace, to not be afraid, and to not be weak in the heart. The, the two nations may be making noise, but they're no real threat to him. God is saying to Ahaz. Isaiah describes them as smoldering firebrands. Imagine a campfire that's dying down. The flames that initially burned red hot are now merely charcoal. They're about to die out. Judah's enemies are like lions without fangs or a viper without venom. God is telling Ahaz. 
Therefore, Judah has no reason to be afraid. Although these nations have purpose to destroy Judah, God's purposes will prevail over these two nations and their plans will fail. Ahaz is faced with a decision. Is, is he going to listen to the voice of man or is he going to listen to the voice of God? Will he actually believe that God's word will prevail or the words of men will prevail? Look at what's going on here. It's, it's, it's voices that Ahaz needs to pay attention to. He's listening to the wrong voice. He's listening to the wrong word. All he hears are these, the, the threats of these two nations. They're drowning out the voice of God. Likewise, we're, we're faced with the same decision with every trial that you and I face. Are you going to listen to the voice of your trial or to the voice of God? Are you going to believe that God is able to overcome everything that life throws at you? Or are you going to believe what Paul says, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? What voice are you listening to today, brothers and sisters? Is it the voice of your trial, or is it the voice of God from his sure word? We have not a flimsy foundation, but a firm foundation in the Word of God. I don't see how anyone can have peace without focusing on the sovereignty of God over the purposes of men. It just would cause me to go crazy. If God wasn't sovereign over the purposes of men, then Christ would have never made it to the cross to accomplish his all redemption. But he is sovereign over the purposes of men. The next thing about God's sovereignty that we need to focus on is his sovereignty over history. It says that for, for the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. What is God doing here through Isaiah? God is prophesying through Isaiah regarding the end of these two nations. In just a few years, both nations will be a blip in history. Within a few years, Syria will be conquered by Assyria, and afterwards the northern tribes will, of, uh, of Israel will also cease to be a people. They will be scattered over. Uh, and, and so God wants you to know that he is sovereign over history. And his sovereignty over history, brothers and sisters, is rooted in his omniscience, his all-knowing character. He knows the end from the beginning. If God were to play chess, the best chess player in the world that he faces, that, that game would have ended long before it started, brothers and sisters. And you know what? It's, 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 it's upon these two principles about God's sovereignty, these two aspects of God's sovereignty that Isaiah says, uh, concludes and says, if you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. That word firm, he says, if you are not firm in the faith, the root meaning of that word means certainty. 
It means certainty. If you are not certain about the object of your faith, you will not be certain at all. Brothers and sisters, do you know God? Do I know God? We may say that, but if we're panicking and fearful because of the, of the trials that we're facing, we know not God. We may say that we do, but our actions say otherwise. Because, again, like that, the, 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 the quote from the pastor, faith is positive certainty expressed in action. Do our lives display that? You know, we may not know what trials are coming our way. But we, but we can always look back at God's track record and we can see that he's, he's always been flawless. We, we can bank on the unchanging character, unchanging nature of our God. He was faithful 6,000 years ago, 5,000, 4,000, 1,000 years ago, and he's faithful now. You know, we have here in Ahaz a pretty pathetic example of a king who didn't believe in God. He's wavering. He's, he's shaking. He sees the trial in front of him, and he's afraid for his life. However, the scriptures speak of another king. A king greater than Ahaz and all that's come before or after Ahaz. And when this king was faced with the greatest trial of his life, he never ceased to entrust his life to the Father. Paul says of this king in Philippians chapter 2 verse 8, that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus is the perfect example of what true faith is. He is the perfect example of what it means to not only give in a sense of faith in God the Father, but to actually live that out. He knew who his Father was, and he continued to entrust himself to him, even in the most trying season of his life, namely his journey to the cross. He didn't retreat. He pressed on because he knew his father. He entrusted his life to his father moment by moment, second by second. And brothers and sisters, we too need to follow the example of Christ, entrusting our lives to the father moment by moment, faith by faith. You see, in order for you to build a firm foundation of faith, it's quite simple. The turbulence of life's trials may shake you up, but in reality, they can't hurt you. The truth is, brothers and sisters, that God will always keep his promises. God will never fail. God is not like man that he should lie. Brothers and sisters, if you want to build a firm foundation of faith, stop focusing on your problems. Stop focusing on trying to save yourself and start focusing on God's word. It is sure. It is sure. Amen? Amen. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Father, we come to you and give you thanks and praise for your word. It is sure. It is firm. It is our foundation. But God, we so often, when we're confronted with trials, magnify what we see as opposed to fixing our eyes upon Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Oh Lord, would you remind us, would you remind us of your faithfulness? Would you remind us when we go through trials that your word is a firm foundation because you are a, a, a your character, Father, is, is impeccable, it is flawless, you never lie. You are a God of truth, Lord. Remind us of that, Lord, when we're confronted with trials every day of our lives, Lord. Fix our eyes upon Christ in the moments of trial. And remind us by your spirit, Lord, of your character. God, that's what we need most. We, need, we don't need to have all of the answers. We just need to know the God that is with us leading us and guiding us. It is not blind faith that we possess, Father. It is a sure faith rooted in the foundation of your inerrant word. God, by your Spirit, cause us to believe you and to trust you. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Respond to this message or learn more. Please visit calvarytruth.org.